In A Civilizations, the great historian Felipe Fernandez Amisto writes that it is often said, and rightly, that societies are not organic beings and that it is misleading to draw analogies between the lives of communities and those of creatures. Yet in one respect, societies are like individual people. In both, vices and virtues mingle in the greatest saints and in the most politically correct common rooms. For every good intention, there is a frail deed. Each provide the standard by which the other is measured. Civilizations compared with other types of society certainly have no monopoly of virtue. But a true pluralist has to relish the diversity they add to life. A genuine cultural relativist bound to respect every society's conception of itself is unable to condemn them. And what a sum of the great diverse societies or civilizations that have evolved or developed in the seven big environments of the world. That is the question for today's Burning Archive. Okay, so today I am uh, extending my response to Isaac Rich's question about cradles of civilization following uh, the previous episode's discussion of the idea of civilization and how civilization is kind of represented in the game civilization and how, you know, there's some misleading concepts there, but also it introduces you to that sheer diversity and plurality and uh, astonishing variety and mix of good and bad that Fernandez Amesto talks about in that quotation at the start, start of the show. And I talked about the different concepts of civilization and how, you know, it's not really progress, but that... Uh, and it's not a, an achieved state so much as a process, and a process in particular in Fernandez Mesto's argument of adaptation of the environment. The itch to civilize, he says, is uh, an itch to accommodate the world uh, of nature to the needs of humans. In a sense, a garden is a perfect symbol of a civilization, and there have been many, many varieties of gardens in many, many cultures. So, in this uh, episode, I'm going to sort of build out a little bit on the examples of civilizations in the seven broad environments that. Uh, Fernandez Amesto talks about and his demonstration of the sheer variety and some of the less lesser well-known civilizational achievements, so to speak, in those different environments. That civilization is not a stranger to any particular environment on planet Earth. It is not founded in the Fertile Crescent, or in the ideas of Western civilization, or indeed of Chinese civilization, but has taken many, many different forms. And the seven environments are so he, he talks about the wastelands of desert, tundra, and ice. And I'm going to look in particular at some of the stories of the Sami people 
in the ice and tundra of northern uh, Eurasia. Then there are leaves of grass, the uncultivable grasslands, not heavily irrigated grasslands, but uncultivable grasslands. Mm. And there I'm going to return to the Eurasian steppe, which I did talk about a little bit in the first episode, and in particular the Scythian or Sarmatian cultures of the steppe. Then the third environment is tropical lowlands and post-glacial forests, what he describes as civilization under the rain. And here I'm going to look in particular at the tropical lowlands and the African civilization of Benin. Then uh, in part four, the fourth environment is the alluvial soils in drying climates. These are, in a sense, the traditional uh, cradles of civilization, the traditional uh, beginning point in many stories of civilization in the Southwest Asia, China, and India. And I'm going to recount Fernandez Amisto's own version of that story and how it is somewhat different and foreshadow uh, some broader discussion in the next episode. And look in particular at Sumerian civilization, often seen as the you know the original, uh, the beginning of uh, civilization and writing and state societies and all that sort of thing. Fifth environment are the highlands, and here I am going to look at the South American. Central American civilizations of the Aztecs and the Incas. Then we go to the seas and civilizations shaped by the sea, either on islands or on the shoreline or coastal coastal civilizations. Rather like Australia, I guess. But here I will look at the great lost civilization of Sri Vijaya in, uh, I guess, what we would now know as Indonesia. Then, finally, his last one is on the domestication of the oceans. How can you found a civilization on the ocean? And yet, uh, what we have largely talked about in terms of Western civilization is based on the concept of the Atlantic Ocean. And here I might talk about i'm going to talk about that the emergence of that concept of the atlantic civilization and that will then uh, bring us into the end of that sort of overview of civilizations first of all let's talk about deserts tundras and ice and uh, felipe fernandez amesto begins his book in civilizations with what would seem to be the ultimate contrast to the fertile crescent of that's the cradle of civilization and that is the wastelands of deserts tundra and ice and in these sections he uh, talks about the ice age in europe northern scandia scandinavia asiatic uh, tundra i guess that vast region across the top of Eurasia, which is largely uh, Russia, 
Arctic America and Greenland under ice and in deserts of sand. He talks about the North American Southwest, Northern Peru, the Sahara, the Gobi and the Kalahari. And the little section I'm going to focus on as an example of how to twist our uh, ideas about civil or to turn our ideas around civilization and how their adaptations to the environment on its head a little bit is the section about the Sami people and the Laps or the people of the north, the tamers of reindeer is the section that I'm going to talk about. He begins this little chapter by saying deserts of ice have a bad reputation as homes of civilization. They would seem to be incredibly difficult environments. And yet that is also what has clearly happened. Many great civilizations have found a way to adapt that environment. So so there have been cultures that have emerged and successfully prospered and found ways of adapting this harsh, harsh environment uh, to human needs. And similarly, uh, more blessed uh, or, or cultures with more blessed environments have tended to see the peoples of the north as barbarians. And there is a long, long tradition of that kind of both uh, noble savagery and also um, subhuman barbarity projected onto the people of the north, the Sami of northern Scandinavia and so on. But Fernandez Amesto really makes the point that to adapt the old world, like pre-industrial Arctic environment, to human needs is a truly remarkably ambitious attempt to control extraordinary seasonal fluctuations and to find ways to uh, exploit relationships with uh, the, the, the weather and also with the wild beasts. And in particular, uh, one of the most remarkable things was the development of a reindeer herding culture amongst the Sami of northern Scandinavia and the Ninets, who are sort of in on the edge of the Arctic Ocean between, uh, uh, you know, I guess, top of, top of Russia, top of Siberia, and also some other Siberian uh, uh, what, peoples, the Yemen, Koryak and the Chukchi. What these peoples evolved was a a kind of controlled nomadism which uh, used the resource of the reindeers with extraordinary imagination and versatility. Uh, they combined hunting in the wild, taming selected individual beasts and regulating the migration of huge herds and practices developed over centuries. There are clear written accounts of these practices dating back to the 9th century AD and a particularly remarkable account by a man named Olas Magnus who was a uh, the Archbishop of Uppsala uh, where uh, Isaac Rich actually studied uh, just as a little description and he wrote an incredible book called The Description 
of the Northern peoples in uh, the 1500s based on his own travels in those times. We'll come back to that in a second. So these people developed a uh, structured rhythm of herding life uh, where the herds were moved from uh, breeding grounds in the summer to to places where there's a cull to collect the meat and moving on to winter, uh, winter quarters. And there have been heads, uh, herds of thousands of reindeer controlled by two or three herdsmen with the help of dogs. Reindeer were totally vital to the life and the culture of these uh, groups, the Ninyet, the Sami, etc. And in Ninyet, the sort of northern uh, Russian, Siberian type uh, Arctic uh, group, reindeer, the term for reindeer, Zileb, actually means life. And it's reflected in the huge range of uses of the reindeer. Uh, they're used for food, for skins, uh, for uh, drink, blood and marrow. Their horns are used in many different ways. The bone is used for arrowheads and needles. Uh, their guts are used to make thong thongs and thread. And, of course, their coat is used for a very warm coat and of course reindeer meat is used widely and it was pointed out by Olus Magnus back in the 1500s that to survive to uh, to adapt a culture to this environment required exceptional technical resourcefulness he wrote as the nations of a hot or temperate zone are clearly are clearly free from frost, cold, snow, rime, ice and howling winter storms, they can hardly grasp the diversity of skills, facilities and appliances with which those who live in the bitter cold of the north defend themselves and make arrangements to deal with the severities of this kind. For if nature herself has fortified wild creatures with many wonderful limbs and joints to make them complete, what should she not grant for his comfort to the feebleness of man? So amongst these technological achievements are skis and arrows and crossbows, spears, tents. Uh, the use of reindeer is uh, locomotion, sleds, lassoes, snowshoes, dams for trapping fish, fox traps and many other paraphernalia of uh, arctic life and in addition the there was a tradition of uh, well a speculated tradition perhaps of magic and shamanism amongst the uh, these people they it was said that they exchanged weapons for wizardry and made war by invoking rain but perhaps Fernandez Amesto says these are really what appear to be divination and augury are really the skills of people closely attuned to nature and practised in reading her ways, predicting weather, foreseeing glut and dearth, tracking beasts and armies and finding their way by watching bird flight. Those whom civilised life has separated from nature see these skills as marvellous. 
But the shamanism also carried a great tradition, which was the drum, the shaman's drum, which was used to um, harness the power of the uh, sort of night journey dream travels of the shamans and to summon the dead in the service of the living. But this, these drums, which were, if you like, the cultural artefact of the rich culture and the rich civilization of this group, these group of people, uh, at least amongst the Sami, were largely destroyed in a wave of Christian evangelism in the 16th, 17th and 18th century. They were destroyed in really a great act of cultural uh, destruction. And even though they uh, were lost, Fernandez Mesto says, the art of reading their pictograph... So these drums were illustrated with various images and there's only a few of these magic drums uh, that survived the uh, wave of Christian sort of uh, cultural destruction and they were decorated with pictographic inscriptions which represented a form of written culture let's say. The art of reading their pictographic inscriptions has been lost but should not be taken to mean that the red figures traced in older back older bark juice on the reindeer hide drum drum skins did not once recall stories or spells for their shamanic interpreters or according to plausible modern attempts at decipherment display cosmic diagrams or maps of the heavens. So that is uh, the story of a civilization in the deserts of ice, the Sami uh, of the north and there are some great television shows now describing the life of the Sami but again there is also those uh, artifacts of compassion and understanding like Olus Magnus's description of the northern peoples which uh, Fernandez Amesto describes as one of the world's great unacknowledged works of genius a generous and open-minded act of wonder and and, and um, appreciation of the culture of the northern people is still so strange and different to that of a Christian bishop in Sweden, but one that has uh, survived to tell those stories, and also the remarkable drums of the shamans, of the Sami bear hunters, so many of which are lost, but which also give us a brief short glimpse into a rich culture and civilization of the ice. Okay, so number two is about the grasslands and the Eurasian steppe. So here uh, Fernandez Amesto talks about the uncultivable grasslands and the Eurasian steppe. And I spoke a little bit about the Eurasian steppe in the previous episode. So the great grasslands of the world uh, include 
uh, the Eurasian steppe all the way from Manchuria to the western shore of the Black Sea, the great North American plain between the Rocky Mountains and the Mississippi Valley and the Great Lakes, and the North African savanna and Sahel, which is that sort of strip up the top of it above the Sahara Desert. Um, and these environments have been full of grass, I guess. Uh, and some of those grasses, like wheat and rye and whatnot, have, have uh, been converted into the traditional cultivable plants of civilizations, cradles of civilizations. But on the whole, the grasses, the native grasses of these um, grasslands, are not so great for human food. But what they have uh, attracted are the big, uh, like the bison and the other, uh, the horses and the um, uh, other kind of uh, grazing animals that have been hunted and herded by the peoples of these areas. And these grasslands are not without variety, of course. Um, there is great, great diversity in little microclimates and little ecological niches and, and whatnot within the vast land. It's not the endless step of uh, cliché, uh, particularly so perhaps in Africa. But it is to the great Eurasian step that I'm going to turn for my uh, little example of uh, a civilization based in this kind of uh, this this kind of environment. And the Eurasian step, uh, Fernandez Amesto introduces as the wastes of Gog. Uh, Gog and Romance, Gog and Magog being the, I think, Greek kind of story, uh, in the Greek story, the guards of uh, the ends of the world. They, were, they sort of guarded uh, the gates of Europe, so to speak, in the Carpathian Mountains. Gog and Magog, I think, are, are shown in... The, one of the arcades in Collins Street, Melbourne. But uh, according to the story, they were guarding the entry to the great Pontic Caspian steppe that stretched from Hungary through to Central Asia and in on to Manchuria. And this step has attracted much cultural commentary, especially like I guess in Russian culture, because really uh, Russia straddles the steppe and the taiga in the Russian world, especially if one uh, includes the the various former Soviet uh, republics as well, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, etc., etc. Uh, Soviet republics or or Russian imperial uh, provinces. It can be a landscape of wind and apparent endless open sky. Uh, and it's evoked all sorts of uh, descriptions as such. So, for example, there was a German traveller in the 19th century, uh, J.G. Cole, who described the steppe as a land of movement, whose law is movement, 
whose soil abhors deep-rooted plants, favouring instead mobile cattle breeding, whose winds carry everything before them far and wide, and whose flatness invites everything to cross it in haste. This is the terrain uh, that uh, Barry Cunliffe, the archaeologist, describes as the greatest natural corridor on Earth, and that Felipe Fernandez Amesto describes as the highway of civilizations. So much has travelled over here, and uh, the much, much uh, debated territory of Ukraine is indeed on the great Eurasian steppe, the Pontic Caspian uh, steppe, uh, and you know, there are many descriptions from previous times of peoples who have lived and adapted and travelled uh, across Ukraine and the broader Eurasian steppe. Of course, famously, the steppe, uh, I think I might have mentioned uh, in the previous episode, was the home of uh, nomadic cavalry and the birth of horse riding and indeed the domestication of the horse so fundamental to them but there were also forms of quite sophisticated cultures that developed sophisticated and uh, artistically wondrous cultures that developed including those known by ancient Greek writers as the Scythians or Scythians and the Samasians, S-C-Y-T-H-I-A-N-S and the Samasians, S-A-M-A-R-T-I-A-N-S. Fernando Semesto says that the demanding environment of the steppe, uh, you know, it's, it's, its winds, its flatness, its sun, its uh, shifts of hot and cold, uh, perhaps because of the demanding environment and the competitive, violent way of life, this was also a region of impressive and precocious technical developments. And hence we have the domestication of horses, the development of covered wagons, the horse riding, the, the stirrup, the, cav- the um, cavalry. But we also have remarkable and beautiful uh, ironwork and jewel work and gold work, particularly by the uh, Scythians or Scythians. Uh, And the uh, Scythians were horse riders, uh, they were famous fighters but they also were in regular trade with the Greek craftsmen and many of them were based around the uh, Sea of Azov and the north part of the Black Sea where there is, um, you know, currently fighting going on between uh, Russia and Ukraine. In the, This is in the era of first millennium, second half of the first millennium BC, so for say 500 BC through to um, those sites around the north of the Black Sea have found uh, really quite significant and impressive and quite beautiful gold objects. Um, I guess, what would you call them? Plaques and plates and jewellery. Quite exquisite, exquisite 
representations of humans and horses and trees and whatnot really quite beautiful if you uh, kind of check them out and it was uh, although some of those findings have been in southern Ukraine and although times Ukraine has claimed I guess the Scythians as their own it's generally thought that the home base so to speak of the Scythians was really uh, southern Siberia and that they extended out um, from uh, around about 900 BC to 200 BC all the way uh, westward uh, across Central Asia into the northern Black Sea and in the Hermitage Museum in uh, St. Petersburg you can go and actually visit some of and look at some of the extraordinary extraordinary artwork that is uh, that has survived around the Scythians I might also just add as a bit of a aside that there was a whole movement in early 20th century Russian culture called Scythianism which really espoused a Russian identity that was Eurasian rather than European uh, and you know spoke uh, invoked the memory of the Scythian uh, culture as a as a Eurasian culture based across the uh, the Great Steppe and the Tagar and uh, represented a alternative future for Russia other than a future in Europe. And in an interesting sort of way, I guess, um, Russia over the last, I don't know, 30 years has been going through a similar kind of process of, you know, wanting to join Europe and the Atlantic world and finding itself spurred and then uh, choosing to find its um, future in Eurasia as a kind of a a multi-ethnic state in a multipolar world. Anyhow, so the Scythians are a very significant and important culture of the steppe uh, that still have objects of extraordinary beauty uh, still today. Now I can tell already that I'm not going to fit all seven environments into this one episode so I'm going to actually have to do four episodes on civilization. So I think I'll probably do three today and four tomorrow. Um, The, the next environment is about tropical lowlands. And what do we have here? So here we talk about tropical lowlands and post-glacial forests. And the environments uh, Felipe Fernandez Semester has in mind here are the post-glacial and temperate woodlands of uh, in America, the North American temperate forests, and particularly of Europe and the extensive deforestation of those, uh, which of course has been uh, extraordinary, extraordinarily um, significant. Uh, he has a rather tragically named little section called The Retreat of the Trees from Forests to Cities in 12th Century Europe. But he also is talking about tropical lowlands uh, and the, the 
environments and cultures that he talks about here are Frederick Hendrick Island. Frederick Hendrick Island, which is uh, now known as uh, Pulau Dolok or Pulau Yosudaso. Yosudaso Island. And that is a island that is kind of separated from the main island of New Guinea. It's sort of like uh, halfway down and on the bottom a little bit to the left. There's this sort of island that has like a, you know, almost like a huge river, but I guess it's like an ocean um, passage that runs between it and the mainland, Frederick Hendrick Island, also but now known as Pulau Yos Sadaso. So there you go. I actually had to look that one up. But he also talks about the Olmec heartland in uh, kind of Mexico, I think, kind of Mesoamerica, the low uh, Amazon, uh, the lowland Maya island lands in sort of uh, South America, the valleys of the Khmer and, of course, the great Angkor Wat, which I was tempted to do. But the uh, place that I'm going to focus on is Benin City in Africa, in what is now uh, Nigeria, kind of on the southern part of Africa that the kingdom of Benin, Benin was in sort of like that, uh, you know, how Africa is the big part that goes out into the Atlantic Ocean and comes in like a sort of paragraph indent and then comes down again. And the kingdom of Benin, or the Benin Empire, also known as the Edo Kingdom, was really nestled in the little corner of that indent in central sort of Africa. I don't know if I've described that terribly well, but you can look it up on uh, Wikipedia and you'll see what I mean. And again, just uh, going back to Fernandez Amesto's theme of overcoming sort of presumptions and uh, negative assumptions about where and how civilizations can and what sorts of environments civilizations can emerge in. He uh, kind of quotes, uh, you know, Noel Coward of Mad Dogs and Englishmen saying, In tropical climes there are certain times of day when all the citizens retire to take their clothes off and perspire. It's one of those rules that the wisest fools obey because the sun is too much, is much too sultry and we must avoid his ultra Violet Ray, only mad dogs and Englishmen go out in the midday sun. But by contrast to that, he quotes uh, the Islamic writer Ibn Khaldun, uh, who uh, lived between 1332 and 1406, and who uh, wrote a famous work called the Muqaddimah, uh, which is a kind of a history sociology uh, or um, uh, brought together and uh, those of the listeners who have read uh, John Darwin's great great book after Tamerlan which I really probably should do a show on at some point 
Uh, it, it begins with the story of Ibn Khaldun being raised in a basket to enter Damascus to meet the uh, uh, soon-to-die Tamerlan in one of the last great efforts to conquer the whole of Eurasia. Uh, but anyhow, Mukadama also would have travelled into Africa uh, as part of his, uh, you know, studies and journeys, and he would probably have encountered the kingdom of Benin, uh, or uh, emissaries or tales of the kingdom of Benin, because it was a, uh, it was a, it was a, a kingdom that existed from that particularly sort of. Um, strengthened from around about 1000 AD and really prospered for uh, quite a few uh, hundred years after that, uh, including the, you know, enormous walls of this city, this city that uh, emerged in the tropical lowlands. And Ibn Khaldun says here that the assumption that civilization cannot exist at the equator is contradicted by continuous tradition and God knows better. So uh, there you go. So it's not just the Western tradition who have uh, reflected on ideas of civilization and how it has uh, adapted the environments uh, around. Uh, it is also the uh, Islamic tradition. Anyhow, so let's get back to Benin. To live in the tropical lowlands requires cultivating the swamp, and um, that swamp can seem to be what Fernandez Amisto says with a bit of a tongue in his cheek as a habitable hell, the place on earth where people live in the most deadly environment with the most malign climate, the most intractable soil, the sickliest air and the foulest water. But... There have been peoples who have uh, adapted this environment to their own way of life, including those people in New Guinea or uh, Frederick Hendrick Island, Palau, Upasaro, I think it was, and in Mexico and in Mesoamerica and in the Amazon and perhaps quite extraordinarily so in the Mekong Delta, where the Khmer civilization and the great, great Angkor Wat developed, but also in the city of Benin. And while Angkor Wat leaves this extraordinary uh, piece of uh, monumental stone building, there is a, a different kind of city that has survived in Benin. It had been uh, visited by uh, European travellers from the 1600s. There's a, an engraving or an illustration of the city of Benin by a Dutch engraver in 1668, although it quite likely creates a few adaptations to fit European tastes. So Benin emerged as a city uh, in this part of Africa 
out of a cluster of smaller communities in the 15th century, so in the 1400s. And it had a, had a hot, humid climate with lots of lots of rainfall. Ultimately, there was a royal palace built there, but it was known uh, that there was 80 inches of rain uh, a year. And, uh, yeah, 80 inches of rainfall a year. And um, sometimes there were reports that uh, in the royal palace, the rain was coming down so hard, no one could actually hear anything of what people were saying. It was uh, quite a... Uh, it, it was a place where there was human sacrifice, where there were extraordinary and substantial buildings, largely built from mud, but stamped with beautiful reliefs and ornamental brass plaques. It, if you like, it was like a mud, a mud brick city. And the people of Benin were incredibly artistic, endowed with great resources of metal and renowned in both their art and also their warfare. They created huge, beautiful brass heads of their kings and queen mothers and also carved elephant tusks in uh, exquisite ways. Altar rings, spears, shields, swords, uh, all sorts of uh, fabulous furniture. The city was surrounded by a wall made of the same mud and earth, uh, which uh, to some of the initial travellers from Europe didn't seem to be a wall at all so much as a big ditch because uh, they, I guess they were looking for brick or uh, wooden uh, fences, um, but uh, another traveller said that uh, at the gate where I entered on horseback, I saw a very high bulwark, very thick of earth, with a very deep, broad ditch, but it was dry and full of high trees. That gate is a reasonable good gate, made of wood in their manner, which is to be shut, and it always... There is Watch Holden. These walls were built somewhere between uh, the first millennium and the mid-15th century. And there's oral traditions that suggest that most likely more around 1400. And it was of quite an extraordinary scale. So the walls of Benin are a series of earthworks made of banks and ditches and they consist of 15 kilometres and an estimated 16,000 kilometres in the rural area around around the main city and then 16,000 kilometres in the rural areas. Uh, so they are extraordinary and almost like in uh, length of the same sort of equivalence as like the Great Wall of China and complex layout and all sorts of extraordinary things. So, uh, again, quite an uh, amazing and hidden achievement. But Benin also became uh, a conquest state uh, with tribute and slaves across its broad area, across that uh, the Niger and the sea uh, 
and colonise in various areas. And uh, its wealth really came partly from agriculture, partly from its metals and its art, but also very much from commerce. Not slaves so much as the metalworks, the ivory, the carvings. During the uh, 17th century, however, uh, Benin starts to subside in power. There's a bit of a revival in the 1690s, but it ultimately succumbs to European imperialism. So this is this great remarkable city civilization that in some ways to early Europeans didn't even seem like a city because it was just mud huts, but is quite remarkable in its cultural and civilizational accomplishment. Towards the end of this section, Felipe Fernandez Amesto actually reflects on the the fate of these uh, lost civilizations in the jungle, the great, uh, I guess, tr- trope of uh, archaeology, of uh, archaeologists going, like Indiana Jones or uh, Stanley Livingston going into the jungle and discovering the lost uh, civilizations. And indeed, that was the experience of some uh, European travellers in the, I guess, 18th, 19th, 20th centuries of going into places like Morobudur or uh, Angkor Wat and and, uh, Benin and discovering these uh, lost lost civilizations in the jungle. It's a bit of an enduring trope, I guess, and can easily lead one to think that civilization is unlikely to have a successful fate in the tropical lowlands, but that is not really the case. So Fernandez Amesto says every civilization or proto-civilization in tropical lowlands has been stifled in immaturity or declined from grandeur. Their monuments have been choked by jungle or sunk into swamp. Although some lowlands in the tropics provide abundant means of life, in most, the balance of the environment is precarious and civilization is fragile. Yet, almost every civilization in almost every environment has ultimately been reconquered by nature and reduced to ruins. The longevity and magnificence of some of the greatest efforts in the tropics are more surprising than their ultimate failure. The Maya, the mounds of the Olmec, the the city-state world of Benin, the wonders of Angkor Wat, all these are extraordinary achievements in an extraordinarily difficult environment. They show that rainforests house great civilizations, whereas some Uh, rainforests are only lightly modified by their inhabitants. As Fernandez Mesto says, the civilizing ambition keeps recurring in tropical lowlands and often encounters success. The rainforests and swamps are environments where civilization takes us by surprise, like a lost city in the jungle, 
but it is the sort of surprise which happens often enough to make us half expect it. Okay, so I'm going to draw this episode to a close there and I am going to be with you again in the next episode continuing this little series of the different environments of civilization and I'm going to be then talking about the great river valleys the highlands and seas and oceans and the domestication of the oceans might have to pick up the rhythm a bit but I've also given the overview as well in this uh, episode as well okay so until next time uh, I'm Jeff Rich thanks for listening to the Burning Archive podcast do us a favour and leave us a rating and a review on iTunes and share share uh, the podcast with your friends or your social media groups and uh, do remember what thou lovest well or not <laughs>